Does your family have a summer reading list? Maybe this summer is the time to start a new tradition. And I know a great nonfiction book to add to your list. The Bible. We want our kids to know that the Bible is true and can be trusted. But how will they know and believe that if they aren't familiar with it? Have you ever served a new food to your child? And before even taking a bite, the response is, ew. Or maybe you've gone to a family reunion where they don't know anyone and they hide behind you while you try to introduce them to your third cousin twice removed. The point is, those things seem strange to them. It's the classic fear of the unknown. Unfortunately, if we don't start introducing the Bible in our homes, the response is going to be similar. Our kids are not going to believe it's true and trusted if the words and the book itself is unfamiliar to them. If we introduce the little bites from an early age and continue as our kids get older, then the Bible, countercultural as it may seem, will taste good. We can have kids who are ready to face the world with a solid foundation. So here's your summer reading challenge. Find a Bible that works for your child, whatever stage they're in. There are great Bibles for toddlers, Bibles in so many translations for your teenagers to understand, and all kinds of Bibles in between. Let your kids get familiar with the Word of God and put a twist on it. Have them memorize some scripture or books of the Bible for a special reward and make it fun. And if you haven't already, check out our Foundations resource page on our church website. It has a list of books, videos, and other materials that can help those out who may be questioning the validity of the Bible. You can give them a chance to be a detective and find all the ways we know that it is true and trusted. And here's our challenge as adults. Read the Bible for yourself or together with your family. If your kid sees you doing something too, they'll see the value in it even more. Our children won't trust in the Bible merely because we tell them to. Trust is something that develops over time. It's not that different than when you trust your best friend. You trust her not because you've seen her resume, but because she's proven herself trustworthy. It's the same with the Bible. The more our kids know the Bible, the more they will trust it. So teach it, read it, and study it with them. And over time, they'll see how trustworthy it really is. God's Word, God's people, and God's truth are under assault and attack. Take refuge in the Lord. We need everyone to dig deeper, to lay the foundation so that we can stand tall for the Lord. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing today? Good, good. Well, hey, uh, before we get started, I just want to introduce myself. My name is Luke Martin. I am the student minister here at our Taze Valley campus, and I say that because um, I like to have fun with students, uh, especially when it's their birthday. And, uh, oh, he's hiding. Oh, man, that is so unfortunate. Well, it is Ethan Johnson's birthday today. And, um, yeah, he's back. He, they say he's volunteering back in the kids' class today. He's probably just hiding out in the bathroom, so I don't embarrass him. Uh, what we usually do uh, back in the back there, usually get a chair, and um, before your parents freak out, you know, I have the kids 
stand on the chair. They sign a waiver first, you know, whatever, it's okay. No, they stand on the chair, and then everybody screams uh, happy birthday to them as terribly as we can sing it, and it's a great way to uh, really embarrass them. So uh, we won't do that today. Uh, we'll save it for next week back in class. But if you do see Ethan today, wish him a happy birthday. Anybody else's birthday in here today? Not, nobody's going to admit it. That's what I thought. Nobody wants to admit it. No. All right, well... We are in our sixth uh, series of our foundations, um, our foundations topic uh, for the year. And so we've been doing one a month, and it's just crazy to think that uh, we are already uh, at the end of June. Wow, this year is going by very fast. But uh, if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, then, then you know that we have been going through this series uh, because we believe that our core values as believers and as Christ followers, you know, our, our foundational beliefs are under attack from the devil through our culture. Whether it's coming from our friends or our coworkers or social media, you know, whatever way we are receiving these things, whatever method it is, the barrage of Satan's arrows are striking at the heart of who we are and what we believe. Psalm, 11, Psalm chapter 11 verse 3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so we're doing something. We are, we are doing something. We're putting our money where our mouth is, and we are building, or maybe we are reinforcing, or maybe we are building for the very first time, right, the spiritual foundations in our lives and in our children's lives by teaching them these foundational truths, uh, foundational biblical truths, that is, uh, that equip us to defend our faith. And man, isn't Aubrey doing a great job with that, especially here at this campus? Yeah. Uh, I mean, all of our, our um, children's ministers are just doing an incredible job. Uh, Cassie and, T or in St. Albans and, and Hillary, uh, who is um, volunteering down at our Beckley campus. And I believe uh, Stephanie Mosley at our Marmette campus. They're just doing an incredible job um, with this foundations and uh, getting these, these beliefs um, firmly planted in the lives of our kids here. So as a church, though, we can only do so much. We can only do so much as a church. But you as parents, us as parents, right, and, and maybe as grandparents, we have the primary responsibility to teach and to model these biblical truths uh, to our family, to our kids, right? We, that, it's our responsibility I mean, if you think about it, the family is the first institution that God created to live out his truth in this world. The church came after the family, so the church is here to partner with us as family units to, to instill these truths in our families, in our kids. So today, as you heard from uh, the children, we're, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the word of God. And we believe, here at Gateway, we believe that the Bible is true and it can be trusted. And if the Bible is true, it can be trusted, right? Yeah. And if it is true and it can be trusted, then we should love it, right? We should, we should love it. We should study it. We should obey it. When faced with any situation in life, especially difficult circumstances, we should be able to turn, uh, you know, do some inward reflection and say, well, what does Scripture say about this? How does God 
uh, say I should handle this? What does the Bible say, right? And if it's true, then it is the final authority for all matters of faith, for all matters of, of, of practice, of morality, because there can't be more than one truth on a single matter, right? Would you guys agree with that? If it's true, and you believe it's true, then it's the most consequential and influential book you will ever read. But also, if the Bible is true and you dismiss it or you neglect it, then you're, uh, you're guilty of dismissing God himself. So as I begin, I want to ask a bit of a rhetorical question here. Do you think the Bible itself and biblical truths are under attack today? I think we would all say yes to that. I mean, look around. Look around and you'll see all the ways that culture is trying to, uh, to throw this sacred book to the side, right? Billy Graham, he once said that if you are ignorant of God's word, then you will always be ignorant of God's will. Pray we're never ignorant of God's will. So today we're going to talk about how we know the Bible is true and why we can trust it. But let me start by, by clarifying this, right? We love God's word. We love God's word, but we should not worship it. We should not worship it. That would be something called bibliolatry, right? Nabil Qureshi, he said uh, he was a well-known Christian apologist who... Um, he was well known because he was a Muslim and converted to Christianity. Um, but he was asked this question once, you know, how would you respond to someone who says they don't believe in the Bible? How, how would you respond to that question? And he, he says, um, he prefaces it with this, you know, call me crazy, and some have, but he believes starting with the, Bi the Bible as the foundation of our faith is idolatry because... It shouldn't be. Jesus should be the foundation of our faith. Jesus is our foundation, and we worship God and his son, Jesus Christ, alone. And we love the Bible because it helps us know God and his son, Jesus Christ, in more deeper, more, more intimate ways. So, we should love the Bible. We should love God and his son, Jesus Christ, first, but yet we should love the Bible. And I want to give you three quick reasons why we should love the Bible. And the first is because we cannot live without it. We simply can't live without it. Four, uh, three times in the Bible, we read this same, um, the same sentence. We read it in Deuteronomy 8, in Matthew 4, and in Luke 4. We read this statement, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that is how important God's word is. That is how important the Bible is, right? We cannot live without it. Not just spiritually, right? But also physically, because think about it. Without God speaking all of it into creation, into existence... Well, we don't exist, do we? Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. We live by God's word, by his very breath. We should also love the Bible because it's always proven true. The Bible is always proven true. God has never spoken a false word. The writer of Hebrews says that it is impossible for God to lie. Who all's lied in here this past week? 
Probably, probably every hand could go, uh, no forcing hands up. I see you back there. No forcing. <laughs> no. What God has said in his word has either already come true or it will come true in the future. And we may disagree on the interpretation of his word or some scriptures, right? But all of us as believers, we should agree that what God says he's going to do, he is faithful to do it. Amen? Amen. In Psalm 1830, we read, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And in Psalm 12, 6, we read that the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You know, one day in eternity, I think uh, we will all have the, the knowledge that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 12, uh, and, and we'll be able to sit back one day and, and we'll be able to think to ourselves, man, it all makes sense now. This all makes sense. You know, I, I thought it would be this way. I, I thought that this, this plan was going to be better, but, but it makes sense. Like, he really was in control. He really had this all thought out and planned before. He is in control, and I see now exactly what he meant. Here on earth, you know, we can disagree about a lot of things in our interpretations but two things we cannot disagree on is that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the Bible is the true word of God. And finally, we love the Bible because it is our timeless and relevant guide for life. And the Bible's authority and, and, and relevance for all of life's situations uh, is really, truly unlike that of any other book ever written. And we can see this from testimonies from countless lives that have been supernaturally transformed. I mean, drug addicts have been cured by it. The sexually confused have been freed by it. Derelicts and deadbeats tran transformed by it. Hardened criminals reformed by it. Sinners rebuked by it. And hate turned to love by it. The Bible, it possesses this dynamic and transforming power that is only possible because it is truly God's word. The, the Apostle Paul, he captured this thought when he wrote in 2 Timothy. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And if you consider yourself a young person out there today, which I should see every hand up, right, uh, then here's a great passage for you to read and, and to memorize. Um, it's Psalm chapter 119. Um, and, uh, you know, it's talking about how Aubrey does a great job with, with the children, uh, especially on these Foundation Sundays. She has them, you know, challenges them to, to memorize their verse. Uh, and Lincoln, he loves coming home or, you know, getting out of class because he, he usually does memorize his verse, and he gets a prize for that. So uh, a prize for you guys from Miss Aubrey if you come back next week memorizing all of chapter 119 of, uh, of the book of Psalms, uh, because it is the longest book in the, uh, the longest chapter in the Bible with 176 verses. So challenge accepted, anybody? Yeah? Okay. All right. Uh, almost every verse in this reference here, though, that we're going to read, it mentions God's word in some way. 
Verse 9, starting in verse 9, going through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And I know this verse starts out by addressing young men, but make no mistake about it, that verse isn't just for men, right? It's for everyone, everyone who reads it, everyone who hears it. And then one more snippet from uh, this same chapter, just a few verses down, verses 103 to 105, he writes, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that's God's word. That is, that is the Bible. It is our light for this journey called life. And I pray that, that you, that, that we would all become people who, who love it, who study it, and who obey it. American theologian Charles Ryrie, he once said, The Bible is the greatest of all books. To study it is the noblest of all pursuits. To understand it, the highest of all goals. But some disagree. Some people still disagree with this statement. The, word, uh, the world disagrees, right? Our culture disagrees and, and even attacks us for not conforming to their view. But why is that? Why is it? Why do they so vehemently disagree with us that the Bible is true? I mean, is it, is it because of the miracles? Is it because the miracles in the book that rivers could be turned to blood, that a sea could be parted to provide a way for six million people to walk across on dry ground, that the sun stood still for about 12 hours, or that a man was swallowed alive by a great fish and then vomited up to preach the good news, or that water could be turned into wine, that a storm could be silenced, that a man could walk on water, a crowd, uh, a crowd of thousands could be fed with a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread, that blind people were made to see, the lame to walk, and the dead to live again? Is it that? I mean, in a, in a largely materialistic world, miracles are, are often doubted. They're often doubted. The, the supernatural is seen as, as this fluke of nature or maybe sleight of hand or, or maybe just something that we can't explain, but it's definitely not God. But the Bible is full of these miracles. And for those who believe, we, we tend to, uh, or we should tend to accept this reasoning that says, if I can accept the very first verse, in the beginning, God, then I can accept all other verses as true as well. Now, why do we believe the Bible is true, though? We, we've talked about why we should love it, why we should cherish it, why we should study it and obey it. But why do, believe, why do we believe that the Bible is true and can be trusted? So we're going to go through 20 points this morning. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we're going to go through three because uh, there's so many. There's so many out there. Uh, and this is, uh, this is something that you could study truthfully for the rest of your life if you, if you wanted to go on that endeavor. But we're going to go with three reasons this morning of why we believe the Bible is true and can be trusted. And the first is consistency. Now, you've probably heard before 
just the amazing consistency and, and unity of the Bible. I mean, it consists of 66 books, uh, completely separate of each other, uh, and, and letters that were written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 different author, authors on three different continents and in three uh, in three different languages. It includes many different genres of writings and has been copied repeatedly into almost every known language. And thousands of manuscripts uh, have been discovered through the centuries that, that uh, contain parts or, or um, parts of the Bible or even entire books of the Bible. Because of how the Bible came about, though, you might be thinking, well, you know, there's, there's a ton of differences uh, and inconsistencies that have, have, you know, that's just littered through there because of the way the tradition was handed down. But yet the, the physical and historical and archaeological evidence points to the fact that, on the contrary, there's this incredible consistency throughout them all. And new manuscripts or, or partial manuscripts are being discovered almost every single year in archaeological digs. And compared to the number of manuscripts and pieces of manuscripts which have already been found, there are very few differences in wording or content between them all. And none of these differences impact scripture or, or change any major beliefs or claims that we hold. And I don't know if you realize the enormity of this fact alone, I'm sure you do, but this is huge when it comes to the credibility of an ancient book. We've talked about a man named Bart Ehrman uh, before, uh, especially in this foundation series. He uh, was once a Christian uh, and uh, a New Testament scholar. He's actually uh, a professor, uh, a New Testament, scholar, uh, New Testament scholar and professor, I believe, at uh, UNC. Is that correct? Uh, Duke? Nor nor yeah, North Carolina, University of North Carolina. And, uh, and, but now he is an atheist and agnostic, and he still teaches on the New Testament. He is a, um, uh, he specializes in, in this topic right here on, it's called contextual uh, criticism. Uh, and it deals with the consistency among translations and, and among manuscripts. And he, um, he points out the fact that there are over 400,000 uh, differences amongst the manuscripts um, that, that we have, that we know, but less than 1% of those change the meaning of anything in any way, and none, but none of those change the beliefs or the values uh, or, or the doctrine of what we believe as Christians to begin with. So that is just an incredible fact um, to, to hear, especially from uh, an atheist, an agnostic there. But time and time again, what we have found in these manuscripts, what you have in your Bibles on your lap this morning or on your smartphones in your hand this morning, has proven to be historically accurate. That means that if a, if a king has been mentioned or a place has been mentioned in the Bible, that that place or that king has been found through archaeological digs. It has been verified in some form or fashion uh, not only through the Bible, but through extra-biblical sources. So uh, th these, these manuscripts are historically accurate. Uh, 
Unlike the changing world in which we live, right, the Bible has presented a coherent theology and consistent worldview from cover to cover. We can make these claims for no other book like we can for the Bible. Not only is the Bible consistent within itself, but it has been a consistent source of authority throughout the ages. It is uh, indestructible. Think about it. I mean, the Bible, it has been uh, attacked. uh, It has been, it has suffered more vicious attacks and attempts to destroy it than any other book in history. From early Roman emperors like uh, Diocletian through communist dictators and on to modern day atheists, the Bible has withstood a constant onslaught from every direction. Yet it endures and is still today the most widely published book in the world. Throughout history, skeptics have regarded it as mythological. Opponents have attacked its teaching as primitive and outdated. But its moral and its legal concepts have had a positive influence on societies throughout history and all over the earth. It continues to be attacked by pseudoscience, by psychology, and and political movements, yet it remains just as true and relevant today as when it was first written. This shouldn't surprise us, though. This shouldn't surprise us, because Jesus says in Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Another reason that we can trust the Bible is true is because of prophecy. Prophecy, one major aspect of the Bible is its prophetic nature. And when I say prophecy here, I, I mean predictive. Okay, so we can, we can kind of supplement that there. Predictive, that means that um, many sections of the Bible, it makes predictive statements about the future. Someone uh, did the math on the prophetic nature of the Bible and said about 27% of the Bible is prophetic. That comes out to about one in every four verses, which that's quite a few predictions um, when you think of the whole scope of the Bible. So let's put ourselves in that situation for a moment, okay? Uh, If you and I, if we were writing a book and we were claiming uh, it to be prophetic or predictive, we would be smart not to make so many predictions because the more we make, the more likely we are to forget one or two, right? I mean, we're all human. We forget things all the time. Who forgot their keys on your way out the door this morning? Yeah, yeah, more than just you. you know, everybody else is just scared to admit it. <laughs> we forget things all the time, right? Uh, and to miss one or two, it might be okay. People might not notice, right? Uh, especially if we're just writing any old book. But if we believe that God is the one behind the consistent authorship of the Bible, then none of these prophecies can be missed for the book to maintain its credibility in our devotion. Biblical prophecy, it can be um, in one of three categories. Fulfilled, unfulfilled, or partially fulfilled. I'll go through this kind of quick, but some examples of some fulfilled prophecies is the first coming of Christ. Jesus as a savior of mankind. You know, prophecies regarding individual people, such as the doom of Jezebel. Prophecies regarding Israel, such as in the case of Israel's exile to Babylon. The destruction of the temple, which occurred in AD 70. Daniel's prophecies about the rise and the fall of many kingdoms. Now, some examples of unfulfilled prophecies are the second coming of Christ, a great tribulation, 
the resurrection of the saved and unsaved, the, the millennial reign of Christ, the new heavens and new earth. And one quick example of partially fulfilled prophecy is found in Jesus' quotation of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, in which he declares the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. In the synagogue, Jesus reads from the scroll, and he, he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has, sent to, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, he, he then proclaimed himself as the fulfillment of that prophecy. But he stopped reading about halfway through the middle of verse 2, because the first part of that verse was already fulfilled by him. In his first coming, but the second half of that verse concerning the day of vengeance of our God was not yet fulfilled. The day of the Lord, his second coming, is still to be fulfilled in the future. Now, the amount of prophecy in the Bible, it is one of the most uh, overwhelming aspects that makes it so unique among all other religious books. There's absolutely no emphasis whatsoever on predictive prophecy in the Quran or in the Hindu Vedas. Uh, you know, that's, that's just for example there. But in contrast, the Bible it repeatedly, repeatedly points to fulfilled prophecy as direct proof that God, that it is God who speaks. In Deuteronomy 18.22, Moses told the people how to tell if a prophet was, was a true prophet or not. He said, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In the New Testament times, the apostle Peter, he said that no prophecy of, scriptures, uh, of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Given God's sovereignty, it should come as no surprise that the Bible contains so many clear predictions or that those predictions are literally fulfilled. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and, uh, and from ancient times things not yet done. I want to share one final reason that we can trust the Bible and we can believe that it is tr the true word of God, and that is simply Jesus. Jesus, the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels, is one of the most convincing proofs that the Bible is true. And there are over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. Not only was his lineage and where he would be from foretold, or where he would be born foretold, but also how he would die and that he would rise again. And that's why the Apostle Paul, he said, uh, he, he told Timothy, he said, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, here are two good, quick reasons uh, of, of several, of, of many, that give the gospel stories of Jesus a great case for reliability. The first is that they were written early. 
pop quiz time. Uh, does anybody know uh, how many years within the cross the New Testament was written? Not a lot of answer, John. <laughs> Any guesses? Let, let me do this. Let me ask this. Uh, more than 100 or less than 100? What would you guys say? Less. Yeah, less than 100. It's actually the entire New Testament was written within 65 years of the cross. Now, that might sound uh, like quite some time. Uh, to hear that, you might think, well, I'd, I'd like that number to be a little closer to like 20 or 30. But think about this for a minute. Who here uh, remembers 9-11? And you could, at the drop of a hat, you could tell me exactly where you were, what you were doing, what you ate for breakfast that morning, what you, know, what you were doing at work, what you know, paper you were writing on in school. Uh, you could all tell me those details, right? How many people in here think they can probably still tell those details 30 years down to the road to their grandkids, to their great-grandkids? Probably all could, couldn't we? We could probably write a book, at least a paper, that made a detailed outline of our experience with this. So when we think of it in that context, 65 years is incredible. It's incredible to the, um, to the just to the uh, credibility of the Gospels. So, uh, moving on, Luke's gospel, it starts out like this. Um, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So we're talking about eyewitness here. The Gospels, they were written early, and they were based on eyewitness accounts. Peter, uh, in his letter, we read that, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There's that word again. John, John starts his letter with a similar sentiment. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Over and over again, the writers of the New Testament books, they either, they either are or they claim to be someone who was with Jesus or with someone who was with Jesus. And that is incredible, incredible when we're talking about the reliability of Scripture. But also the Gospels are, are self-critical. The Gospels are self-critical. This is also another very uh, convincing proof to, uh, to why the Bible can be trusted. In other words, uh, self-critical in the sense that they don't always put the writers or the main characters in the best light. If you were making up a story, if you were to write another book, right? Uh, we're writing a lot of books today. Um, but if you were making up a story, you wouldn't make yourself out to be a failure, would you? No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. We like to fluff ourselves up a little bit. Yet, Peter... He's one of the main characters, and Jesus literally calls him Satan. 
right? He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, he's seen as this quick-tempered and impulsive uh, person, you know, and as someone who even went as far to deny Christ in his hour of need. Who would refer to themselves of Satan as Satan in their own book? Not I. I, I wouldn't do that. James and John, you know, they are seen uh, and portrayed in one scene as power-hungry. Thomas, another one of the 12 apostles, is seen as a doubter. Matthew, he's painted as a little bit greedy, right? Paul calls himself the chief of sinners because he helped stone Stephen to death. And why would you have one of the main disciples become a sellout for money? The entire Bible, it's, it's written like this. It's riddled with people like this, with stories like this. It doesn't gloss over the sins and the failures or even the huge moral failures of its main characters. And did you know that nearly all of the New Testament writers, they were killed for their words. They were killed for their beliefs. It's not likely that such a wide assortment of men, all claiming one single truth, would suffer extreme persecution and go to their death for words they believed to be a lie. Doesn't make sense. And in closing, I want us to consider Jesus. You know, if you were making up a story about a Messiah figure, wouldn't you think it would be more fitting to make him seem like the Messiah? Right? To fit the narrative a bit that the Messiah was, was a powerful king who came with his armies to fight the Romans and wipe evil from the face of the earth. Right? Instead, according to Deuteronomy chapter, 22 verse, or chapter 21, verse 22, Jesus was seen as one who was cursed by God because of the cross. Yet Jesus, he was gentle and he was loving. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And instead of resisting, he willingly laid down his life for us on the cross. Instead of seeking vengeance, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's no other world religion that has such a figure as Jesus Christ. The Bible is our owner's manual for, for life. And there is no other book that promises forgiveness that promises life, that promises hope, that promises uh, a purpose as the gift of God through Jesus Christ like the Bible does. So this morning, as I close, if you have never met this God, if you've never met the God of the Bible, uh, of this living word that we spoke about today, then I want to invite you to know him and to accept him today. If you want to make that decision, then I'll be up here on the front uh, as we sing this last song. Uh, and, and if you want to make that decision, then I'd love to, to help lead you through that. Or maybe you would just like some prayer this morning for something that you're going through or something that you're dealing with. If you, if you want that, we can pray for you too. Whatever it is, if you have a need this morning, then I, I'll be up here in the front and you can come talk to me. But I want to invite you guys to stand uh, and we'll close out in prayer and, and song here, okay? Let's stand. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your, your word uh, was made flesh. Your word came and dwelt among us, and, and because of that, we know you. We have the, the, the access to you. And Father, I'm thankful that, that men were smart enough to, to record these things, that, that, that you 
are, were powerful and are powerful enough to, to speak to us, to record these things, that, that we could know you through them. So, Father, I thank you for your word. It is precious to us. It is, it is a tool that we can use to know you, uh, to, to seek you, to find peace, to find strength, to find uh, whatever it is, God, it is in there. And I, I'm so thankful for your word this morning. And I pray that um, this, this message in our foundation series would just uh, compel us and equip us to, to, to study it more, to, to learn it more, and to obey it more. So, Father, help us to do those. Encourage us with these things this week. We pray these things in your name. Amen.